0: Tickets go on sale this Friday, the 26th of April at 10 a.m., but anyone who is part of the Happy Mum, Happy Baby newsletter will be getting early access to tickets on Wednesday, the 24th of April at 10 a.m. To sign up to the newsletter and for more information about the event, please head to happymumhappybaby.com forward slash events. I can't wait to see you there.
1: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care.
0: Before we start, I just want to flag that this episode contains some difficult conversation on the subjects of miscarriage and also sexual assault. If you prefer, please choose another episode. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Happy Mum, Happy Baby, the podcast. Today's guest has a little boy. Uh, She is a journalist and an author. She talks a lot about bodies yes. and you know all of us you know we have very different relationships with our bodies um she also talks about gender um her family setup isn't quite what she thought it would be when she first had ideas and expectations of what that might look like um particularly because her then-husband, when her baby was six months old, uh, revealed that they were going to transition. Yes. But she's written a book, Somebody to Love, which I'm halfway through and I'm absolutely <laughs> loving. Uh, today's guest is Alexandra Hemmingsley. Hello. Hi. Welcome. <laughs> thank you for having me. Not um, at all. And for thank the thank lovely so introduction. <laughs> I'm, I'm absolutely loving the book. Oh. I'm, I'm enjoying it so much. Oh, thank you.
2: Yeah, it was a funny old time to write it because I, it sort of felt like what the book's about happened in one life, then it was la- written in this sort of corona life. Yeah. <laughs> a, a massive... Well, most of the edits and stuff. And then it was sort of published into this life. And so I feel like I've been unlocking, as it were, <laughs> for about four years now. It's been like one giant lockdown of... Matt Leave that rolled into life meltdown that rolled into yeah. communal lockdown.
0: <laughs> so. Well, I've literally been talking to my husband about, you know, our chat today. Because uh, i before every podcast episode, I sort of tell him about who, yeah. who we're talking to and uh, with you. And I was like, well, and this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And, and I feel like each little section could be its own chat because I feel like so much happened to you, especially within, you know, from the start of your parenting journey, yeah, you know, until a year in, like, there was so much packed into that. Yeah. and uh, So writing about it, no wonder there's so much to to unlock and unpack. Yeah,
2: and it felt like a really big deal for me to be as open as I am in this book. But because I'd written about women and bodies and my relationship with my body before, I'd written Running Like a Girl, which was about, Mm -hmm. like, being the world's worst runner and doing it anyway... And leap in, which was about discovering swimming and open water swimming at the same time that I was having fertility treatment. I felt like I either have to just not talk about this anymore, or tell the truth about what's happened to me because any kind of middle ground would have been a bit disingenuous. Because how I see everything in life is now quite different. How I see sort of any sort of conversation around diversity and what a woman can be and like these huge topics which is I just felt like I'd come out of a tumble dryer and so I was like I either have to say nothing and just smile politely when people want to talk about my past work or actually kind of address it and look at how everything changed
0: thinking about becoming a mum is that something that growing up you always just you knew that's what you what you wanted
2: yeah, I absolutely never questioned that I would become a mum. I didn't... There was never any conflict about what if I meet the kind of person who doesn't want to have children with me or whatever. It was always like, well, that then that isn't the person I want to be with. And right up until I was married and we were trying to have a baby, uh, my then-husband really wanted to have children as well and, you know, we were really excited about it. But we had difficulty conceiving and so I had IVF and that was in itself
0: I mean it's quite a brutal process and I I've think never, I I've definite... never heard it described in the way that you do in the book
2: really no, I, yeah <laughs>
0: I, I feel like there was such a rawness and it's brutal what someone who goes through IVF has yeah, to endure yeah and it's
2: completely one-sided as well and so the it the the reason we had it was not specific to me. It wasn't specific to anybody. It was just sort of like you should do that. And I, by this point, I was like in, heading into my late thirties, and so I was really lucky. I was in Brighton, and the the GP that we saw said, "Look, if you are going to do this, just do it now, because your chances will be higher. Don't stress about it. Don't beat yourself up about it." And that was really that was a big burden off that I didn't have that pressure. And we did for the first round, we didn't have any financial pressure either. But physically, it's really brutal. You know, it's hyper stimulation to make you sort of over ovulate. And I think the thing that really, I found really challenging was that I sort of lost sight of what was what I was actually thinking about what was going on and what was a hormonal response. Right. So I didn't really, some days I'd be really sad. And it was like, am I allowed to own this? Can I just be really anxious about never having a child? Or is it just hormones and I should just assume that it will flow out of my body at some point? And so I kind of, I sort of lost a bit of connection with myself in that respect. And then once I sort of got over that and, and we we did two rounds um, but we got quite a lot of embryos and our son was the absolute last. Um, it was last chance Luna and I finished writing Leap In before we tried that because I was so exhausted by it mm. and so sort of battered and bruised by the whole thing. I felt like I just have to finish this book and it not be dependent on what the result is. So I finished that and then it, then the final embryo totally worked. And
0: this is after a lot as well because you had a miscarriage. B- before yeah everything as well I had a
2: miscarriage when we did the first round and then this and that was the only embryo we'd had right. And so it was a big jump to do the second round and then we then I think we had five embryos from that and I always say it's like why my son is so chilled out like he was literally <laughs> on ice <laughs> for, a, for a whole sort of like giant long period of time and then I was sort of like, oh, like it was meant to be. It was our last chance, and I did the book. And then they, then you know, what publishers alike. They were sort of, so you're right. You've written this swimming book, and it's cold water swimming. So, we thought we could take these pictures of you like in the water by the pier. And I was like, six weeks pregnant, like, <laughs> and it is that awful time when you don't want to tell people, but you also don't want to put yourself in a vulnerable position especially as I knew this was like our last chance and all of that and so that was when I had the first of the (laughs) difficult situations which was that we paid to have a harmony test because I just thought I just what I really needed to know was that the pregnancy was viable that it wasn't going to be a pregnancy that would end up with a situation where the child wouldn't survive. You know, there's certain genetic things that they always warn you about at every one of those first midwife meetings. And we've never really got to the bottom of it because it was so stressful that in the end, when I looked into taking, like, legal action and stuff, I just thought, I actually just have to face forward and live my life now. But what it looks like happened was that the lab results got mixed up Because then when I was um, about 10 weeks pregnant, the private sonographer that we'd gone to who'd done the test rang up and said, oh, hi, just calling to check. Um, It was a donut egg you used, wasn't it? And I said, no, it it definitely wasn't like the worst bit of IVF is getting the eggs. (laughs) And she said, oh, weird. And it was like... Is that all she said as well? She didn't, like,
0: elaborate?
2: No. And I said, what do you mean? And she went just that like the piece of paper here is just saying that you don't share any DNA with the baby and I just felt like someone had thrown a bucket of cold water down my back because if you'd got pregnant normally I mean it's not that's not the kindest word to use but you know what I mean you would just laugh you'd yeah. say well of course it is but with IVF like the possibilities are exponential it could have been it, it didn't share DNA with me, but it might have shared DNA with my ex and it could have been somebody else's baby entirely. Like, did they make a mix-up at the IVF clinic putting in someone else's embryo? Did they make a totally wrong embryo? Like, you see other couples in the waiting mm-hmm. room and I was like, I should have looked at them more. I might be having <laughs> one of their babies. And she just was completely baffled by it and said, oh, you just need to ring the IVF clinic and speak to them about it. And she just sort of, like, left it like that. And it was completely terrifying. Mercifully, the IVF clinic took it unbelievably seriously, obviously. Well, they called you in the next
0: day, didn't they?
2: Yeah, I mean, the woman from the, the sonographer had phoned me at, like, five o'clock on a Thursday and so I was trying to get hold of the IVF clinic and I just was like ringing them and obviously then you start googling and like these mad search terms like carrying wrong baby law UK (laughs) (laughs) and like just things that you can't believe your fingers are doing then the IVF clinic didn't call us back till like eight o'clock the next morning and at the time it was completely tormenting it was absolutely horrendous in hindsight they did the right thing because they basically been up all night they'd when you have IVF or at least I think it still is the case obviously it's a while ago now you get like a bar you get a card with like a barcode and you don't even go into any of the rooms without scanning it so they know who's been in and out even just you know to have a scan or to have a blood test Mm. or whatever so they can track you like room to room for the whole time so they'd gone and got all of that paperwork and they'd found out what every single other embryo that had been made on the days that we were in the building and what had become of them and, like, checked, you know, if any were... by. Obviously, I think it turned out, actually, because this guy was our last chance. There'd been a long time, and I think everyone else had... There weren't any, like, unaccounted-for embryos, basically. But they were able to be really, really specific about that. But they were also, like, really professional and, like, we have to be sure... So then they had to send me, they sent me to London to Har because I was in Brighton, sent me to Harley Street to have the exact test that I'd had the hormone, the harmony test to avoid, which was a CVS test, which is like an amnio. So it's the giant needle, except instead of getting amnio fluid, it gets a part of your placenta. And so it was incredibly painful. It comes with the associated mi- risk of miscarriage. Yeah. It meant travelling in pain, getting home in pain. And it took weeks. They did all kinds of tests, and it was just you know that that magic period when you get to twelve weeks and you can start telling people with a sort of bit more of a sense of security was it was I never really had that. Well, you still it didn't know like,
0: who's if the baby you were carrying yeah, was yours. The,
2: yeah, I mean it is totally mine. I know it's we know this, yeah, now yeah, yeah. That yeah. it could be ever <laughs> yeah. different. But that bit came back relatively early. I think that took maybe a week and what do you do in that time like you've lived through all that anxiety of IVF already for so long um and it just it yeah it just felt endless well, and it's at a time um, where you
0: should be starting to connect with your body and what's going on and, yeah, and the baby growing inside exactly. you and, and there must just have been a sense of just complete and utter confusion and not knowing what to do.
2: Yeah and I felt so proud like that feeling that I'd had during the IVF when you've got all these synthetic hormones and you have like is this me is this truly what I think or is this a hormonal response to all these chemicals and everything that I felt like oh my god I'm past that bit now I'm into the bit where it's just me and my baby and we're going to have this connection and it took a really really long time to sort of reconnect and have that faith that I could actually do it like weirdly for a lot of that time before we did find out that he was mine I was just like going to the kitchen and having like fistfuls of spinach and I became obsessed with this sort of idea of having to have I didn't know he was a boy then but having to hand him over and like I was like I've got to look after him it might be somebody else's imagine if I if I don't like eat properly now and I and he's all kind of scraggy and doesn't look like looks like I was just drinking scotch and watching Homes Under the Hammer, <laughs> which is what I was doing. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't drinking loads of scotch. I did have a tiny glass that first night. was <laughs> an
0: element of that also hoping that if that was the worst-case scenario, that someone would be doing the same for your embryo. Yes, there was that. And it has since happened
2: in the Czech Republic no. that two couples were implanted with each other's embryos. Ah. Because before the Harmony test... The only way you could find out pre-birth was there wasn't any way. Yes. It was, you know, the kind of joke of, you know, the baby would be born and it would be a different colour to one of the parents or something. That, so it was really, I think the Harmony Test was one or two years old when I had it. So it was only really recently that you could find out beforehand. Yeah. And these two couples found out that it had happened to them. And so they, they knowingly gave birth to each other's babies and immediately adopted their own oh babies gosh. back, as it were.
0: I wonder what those, those couples, if they have a connection now. I mean, I know this yeah. is someone else's story, but I wonder if they then go through life and continue that connection and, and to speak to each other. Because yeah, they've...
2: because when you're pregnant, it feels like those moments that you have of feeling connected to your baby are the most intense forever feelings you'll ever have and they what they are still intense and special and magical but now and my son's only just 4 like it's not like he's like even 12 or 20 or anything but those moments seem like the head of a pin yeah. compared to all of everything that you share the minute that they're there and you can talk to them and get to know them and do stuff with them and it's ridiculous how sort of exponentially bigger your relationship with them can grow once they're born but you don't know that when you're pregnant when it's
0: your first pregnancy you just there's no possible way you could have that faith did your bond sort of while he was still inside did it start growing did you allow yourself to experience the yeah. preg- pregnancy and and enjoy it
2: definitely once i'd got all those test results back that was pretty much around the time that i started to get a bump as well yeah so something that had felt Like, there was no evidence of it other than evidence that people were basically arguing over. And then there's a quite a sudden shift when you start to have those little fluttering feelings of the first movement and you start to see a bump and then suddenly it goes from being something that everyone else has a say in to being quite private and intimate. Mm. And I was, yeah, it was good. It felt like the sort of reassurance that I needed came when... At the same time as all the sort of science wrangling ended as well,
0: well, something happened to you towards the end of your pregnancy that is awful for anyone to experience, but it happened to you to you at eight months pregnant,
2: yeah, nearly nine, it was two weeks before he was born yeah um yeah, I was assor- I was sexually assaulted on a train, and i I still have it's more than four years later and I still whenever I talk about this have this instinct to go oh no it wasn't a big thing you know it wasn't like a bad assault because there's always part of me that feels like survivors of different kinds of grades of assault shouldn't feel like I'm comparing my experience to theirs but equally I try to not always have that instinct because it did still happen and it was still an assault and People who have that happen to them on trains shouldn't feel like they can't say anything about yeah. it. So it's like try, trying to get the right balance. Basically, somebody grabbed me. Someone felt me up when I tried to walk away from them on the train because they were and it being was an a, ass.
0: Because they were being
2: they they were well, um, I was I was already on the train. And I was really pregnant, but it was winter, so I it was like March, so I had a big coat on. So you, you wouldn't have instantly noticed, but he was so drunk. Like, the kind of drunk where you just didn't want to be near them because they could be sick, they mm-hmm. could fall. Like, not even like, like kind of angry, cliche, like hooligan. Yeah. <laughs> um, just like a really unreliable-looking person. And he got on and sort of sat opposite me so that our knees were touching on the train. And I just thought, he's going to... I didn't want him to knock the bump. I just thought, there's no way he can see that I'm pregnant. He's going to knock me, I just can't handle it. So I got up to move. And he'd sort of done a whole hello, darling, and stroked the back of my hand and stuff. And I felt so... And he'd got on with a big group of people who were sitting on the batch of seats on the other side of the aisle... And I just felt so vulnerable and I was so tired. It was the end of the day um, and I had, like, a big bag from my sister of, like, loads of things she'd given me, like her breast pump and some baby blankets and so it was all really bulky and stuff. And I just thought, I can't handle it. I'm half an hour away from home. I just want to listen to a podcast and Mm -hmm. chill. And when I walked past him, he put his hand, like, up and under my coat and grabbed my bum and kind of had a feel... And I just lost it. <laughs> I really... It's like, you don't realise. I've always sort of wondered, like, what would you do in one of those sorts of situations? I'm like, are you the sassy person who's got, like, a kind of 1950s rom-com kind of sassy clapback? Or are you going to kind of go feral? Or are you just going to freeze? And you kind of do think... You can't
0: plan it. You, it's something that you can't... No. You don't know what's going to happen. its its It's a reaction, and it's so... It, yeah. it comes down to... It's almost instinct, isn't it? How exactly. do you
2: react to that? Yeah. And I think the thing that I really wanted was that other people knew that I wasn't OK, so I was really loud, because I was terrified. I didn't think... I wasn't terrified that he was going to, like, get more sexual, but he was so drunk that I was terrified he would just be unpredictable it was my it was my bump it was the baby that I was worried about if I'd kind of been if I'd been coming back from a boozy lunch myself and had you know two glasses of Prosecco I probably would have just been a bit sassy and moved away and just you know sworn at him or whatever but I was terrified I just you know it's a moving train I was so you know you're like a weeble at the end of your pregnancy like you've lost control of where your centre of gravity is anyway and and actually he didn't do anything else beyond that which was enough that was a mm-hmm. sexual assault what was terrifying was that i walked up to the front of the train to sit um, as close to the driver as possible um and his friends who were significantly less drunk but pretty pissed came and sort of shut the doors to the carriage and started telling me it hadn't happened and everyone in the carriage um was uh, talking about what a liar I was and how I was, you know, a laughing stock and everything. And I, j- I couldn't get out of the carriage. I was at the front of the train, so I couldn't go forwards. I couldn't go back. They they were all, like, blocking the door. There was nothing I could do. And in the end, someone else came in and got me and said, are you OK? And said, come and sit with me. Um, and it was awful. It was terrifying. I was still half an hour left of the journey. Um, I didn't you you immediately start to doubt yourself that's what I was so shocked by was how quickly and how quickly I went to what I must have done wrong and I'm not that sort of person I'm you know I'd been the one giving it large about me too on Twitter that at that point in time and you know I'd written books about the ownership of our bodies and I still immediately thought about what I'd done wrong what could happen to me and and that dogged me the guy it went to court um and he was found and and an independent witness who I didn't know who'd been on the carriage came forward at the station at Brighton station and came down from Nottingham to give evidence in court and since my book came out someone else has written to me and said they were in the carriage and they saw it happen and she didn't realise that because it was on a moving train, it was British Transport Police. And she'd gone to the police station in Brighton the next day to say she'd seen it happen and that she'd seen police at the station and she wanted to be a witness. So now yeah. I know that, it you know, you can sit here and say, in your I, right mind. I think
0: so many, th- with events from this year, like with Sarah Everard, I think so many women are now going, well, hold on, that's happened to me, this has happened to me we're all told to behave but to behave and act in a certain way yeah be and, nice yeah. yeah and actually <laughs> it's something that we've all just done but never really vocalized before and I think it does take people to come forward and sort of say this has happened it's inappropriate it's made me feel like this for those conversations to open up
2: yeah and it's the maths of it weirdly it was like I felt like, you know, there used to be, I don't know, there still is like a um, Snapchat or an Instagram filter where you can get all like the sums going around your head, like all the equations and stuff. I felt like that filter was on me because it was like, I want to do the right thing. I don't want to waste police time if there are people like being raped. I don't want to not have a voice and add to the systemic problem of it being underreported. Does this guy know where I live? is he going to bear a grudge? He's got all these friends who are telling me these awful things about myself. I'm about to have a baby. What happens if you're breastfeeding and you have to go to court? Like, all of that stuff. And that was like, I just wanted to be like looking at Pinterest boards about baby mobiles and stuff. But again, you you realise if it could knock me the way it did with me having every other sort of support network on my side. I had family that believed me, friends at that point, a husband who completely was absolutely, I mean, and continued to be, and even despite being my ex continues to be totally supportive about all of that. Um, and I, and I thought I would be totally credible in court because I was so obviously not, I couldn't have been drunk. I was, you know, so pregnant and I was the one who'd call the police and they'd pick me up and, you know, they didn't breathalyze me because, I was sober. <laughs> um, but you, then in, in, when it came to magistrate's court, the magistrate decided that he was innocent despite being that drunk and he listed how much he'd had to drink that day. He'd been at a football match in the afternoon. Um, but because when you're heavily pregnant, you can be quite emotional, I was deemed less reliable. Can I just say, that. so and we're talking about how
0: much he drank. I can remember yeah. this. He drank ten pints of beer... 10 gin and yeah. tonics, two bottles yeah. of wine, but you yeah. as a pregnant. One of which just on the train. Oh, wow. So yeah. that's great. Uh, so you being. And that's a what pregnant he was prepared woman, to admit to. Wow.
2: Yeah. But I was in the late stages of pregnancy and I could have just been saying all kinds of crazy stuff, was the attitude. And there was no jury because it was a magistrates' court. So that was the decision. And they said that being found guilty could have a really big impact on his life.
0: But what about the impact on your life of essentially being told, no, you've just made it up or you've, you've, you've made it bigger than what it, that's gaslighting.
2: (laughs) It was. And it was, again, after the IVF and then after the test results that were wrong, it started to feel like this sort of, it was like some sort of living in some sort of alternate universe Mm. where the things that I was being told kept, I kept thinking, no, I'm pretty sure it's the opposite. And it was it was the two days before Christmas. So it was just like I stayed for the whole case because I knew that if I didn't stay for the whole day, I wouldn't find out what the verdict was until in the new year. Right. And so it was just that's the end of it. Go home. And, you know, you see the guy's name on all the court documents and you can see him on his Facebook that night talking about how much he'd had to drink and all that you know it's all there you can I mean I would not recommend that was an unhealthy moment oh, when yeah, I put his but, name yeah. into Facebook I am no longer on Facebook <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah and then you're just told to go home and there's no space for any when there's a not guilty verdict like that there's nowhere for you to put your feelings I mean obviously it's bad if you have a guilty verdict but at least there's a sense of being believed yeah whereas that It was just I just kind of had to go home, change a nappy, and try and face forwards.
0: Has the other person Um, who got in touch since reading the book how how has has, what has that changed your view on it at all? Having another person who was there, yeah, it did. And actually,
2: we had quite a long conversation about it because she said it had changed her as well, like to see it happen. And to be, f- felt she felt very threatened by the mood in the carriage as well. Because um, it was an otherwise like really quiet train. It wasn't like a kind of 5.30 leaving Waterloo on a Monday night yeah. kind of a train at all. It was a weekend. Um, and she said it had really affected her, but that she felt loads better knowing that I was okay too. And you just think, that's just me and I'm so privileged to have had the opportunity to write about it people wanted to publish it and I'm lucky that I'm just a chatty person Mm. that would put that stuff out there how many times is this going on and women are not saying so the connection from the other person that sees it isn't being made and there's these two women carrying this thing around haunting them and even though it was awful at the time of the court case um it was um I was able to move forward because of the sort of connections and discussions that yeah. I've had since because of it.
0: Yeah. I mean it, it it must have caused you a lot of stress through the last part of your pregnancy. They um I should
2: say this because in case it happens to anybody else that the British transport police were really amazing with me. They were very um they, they I couldn't have asked for better treatment.
0: Did you worry, though, about how how it was, you know, even the assault in itself and that heightened state, how that affected yeah. you, you and him? Yeah, to, oh, my God, last...
2: by that point in the pregnancy, I was already being told to travel with my notes. I had high blood pressure. I'm, in the end, I was induced. I did have a C-section because of my high blood pressure in the end. So I don't doubt that it was a significant contributing factor to that and that was also read out in court um but um yes Mm. (laughs) yes Mm.
0: Everything was quite... It just wasn't happening, was it? Because you had an
2: induction. No. They induced me and nothing happened at all. So in the end, they they said to have a C-section. And I, I was really lucky. And I will say of all the things that went on in that period of my life, my C-section was one of the best experiences. Really? Because they said to me... This has gone on long enough. And then, uh, by this point, obviously, my, my notes was like... <laughs> I was turning up like a sort of Scooby Snacks like tittering
0: pile
2: of paperwork. <laughs> and then there's a big red pen and people's eyes would widen and they'd look down when they opened <laughs> No, I'm kidding. It was only slightly like that. But they were like, this has gone on long enough. You, there's too much pressure on your heart. Now that you've taken these drugs and nothing's happening go home, have a pizza, have a glass of red wine, and we'll see you at seven o'clock tomorrow morning. And by that point in a pregnancy especially with everything I'd been through you're so sick of all the unknowns and you wake up gamely every day thinking maybe it's today dare I make a plan to have a cup of coffee with a friend at 3 p.m and you and every meal you make you're like shall we dip into the freezer with all the supplies and (laughs) and you kind of make your bed and think when I get into this bed will I be and it's so exhausting (laughs) and to be told go home chill out, that's your only instruction, see you in the morning, was I felt like someone had given me so much power back and yeah. agency. Considering the reality of a C-section is that you're completely surrendering your power mm. in so many ways. But yeah, I felt calm. It was an amazing sunny day. I could see out of the window. And I just felt like that I'd been given a sense of agency back that I hadn't at that point had for like a year. Yeah, Maybe even more. Um, But I did feel very disconnected. There's a very strange feeling about a C section where you.
0: Well, because you can't feel anything, can you? So you're. Where you
2: kind of can. It sort of feels. It's exactly the same feeling as when you've got a toddler trying to get your attention and they're (laughs) pulling (laughs) at your clothes, like yanking the waistband of your trousers in a shop to go, mummy, come over here. It's like they're just sort of general sense of rummaging yeah oh (laughs) but it yeah you can't you don't feel pain yeah
0: what was it like when you met him for the first time
2: I just felt like I'd known him for a thousand years it was that feeling of like oh it's yeah oh hi it's you (laughs) um yeah it didn't feel like uh a new flatmate (laughs) (laughs) it felt like he'd always been there like um yeah I was I was very taken aback by that yeah um the sense of already knowing him that I had was really profound and how I did
0: oh you carry on Mm.
2: no I just I just really trusted him I think I I felt like we'd been through so much already that now he was on the outside it was all going to be easier
0: yeah what was it like taking him home
2: Oh, it was good. It was exciting, yeah. Sometimes I don't know if you get this when you look at old pictures, and I was and I felt like I knew him already. And in hindsight, like, what was I getting back there? <laughs> like, the feedback was minimal. <laughs> now you know, you can wake up and go say, "What do you want for breakfast?" And we're going to go and see so and so today. And I think no, but I think probably wellies. It says it might rain later. Yes, you can look at my phone and see the raindrop picture yeah. on the app. And whereas I'll look at my phone now and I'll see a picture of us. And I'll remember, I believed that I was having those conversations. And I was honestly <laughs> talking to the baby. And, and I just thought, you know, you just get there, there, there back. If at best, you know, you don't even get a smile for weeks on end. But I, th- I just felt totally, I believed we had a two-way conversation <laughs> going back then. And it's, it's silly now, but, I, you know, you know your baby, I guess. Yeah. You just do.
0: And physically, after your C-section, what was your recovery like?
2: Oh, it was difficult. The scar was okay, actually. I was gobsmacked by how tiny it is. If anybody listening would be scared of a C-section scar, I mean, it's... I think mine is, at most, the length of a mobile phone. And they're super low as well, aren't they? Super low. I thought it was going to be, like... The A4 length of piece of paper just below my tummy button, yeah, and I and I thought that it was going to be like with me forever, and I don't know it's there most days, and it healed really quickly and easily. I I was kind of slightly sort of overwhelmed and scared by it because it it you're very aware how deep it goes, unlike a, like if you cut your hand in the kitchen or whatever it's rarely that deep, whereas I could feel it healing on several layers. But uh, my my pelvis had been very misaligned by carrying my son so much on one side. And it was just something that just was sort of like knocked away by everything else that had been going on. And it took me a really long time to get my core strength back to run and to swim. And those had felt like my sanctuaries and my superpowers all that time before. So... That was really difficult. It took me so long to enjoy those things again.
0: Also because, I mean, your journey into motherhood and this new life of family life kind of kept progressing and and adapting because at six months... And I know that you and your ex, you talked a lot throughout the journey of IVF about how things might change and how... You know, it feels like reading the book that there was such an open communication about that aspect of it but things completely flipped on their head six months in.
2: Yeah, I realised, and I think it was the point in which my ex realised that they were trans, and I think you can never un, like reverse-hack these things and work out what would have come first in another world. I think maybe the sort of hyper-gendered nature of IVF and a pregnancy and the language around it and the stereotypes that often accompany it, I think they chipped away at my ex in a way that for however long they've managed to say to themselves, like, this isn't what's happening, this isn't who I am, this isn't who I am. I think, I mean, I should. Say, it's she. I, we use female pronouns yeah. now, she, but it's confusing until you've put that
0: context in. We're, we're there now, um, so we're that part of the story. Yeah, she, yeah.
2: I think I can't speak for her and I can't speak for the trans experience, but as I understand it, she'd tried every possible way to not be trans. Yeah. And the absolutely super hyper-gendered nature of parenthood in a a point at which everyone was treating her as the dad was a sort of tipping point. And I think in a lot of ways, I realised it first and was begging her to sort of... You don't want to impose what you think is happening to someone on them in case it's not. Yeah. Um. So it was very delicate and terrifying series of conversations that had to go on between us because I knew that she was suffering enormously and she was the closest person to me in the world and was being an amazing parent and all of those things. But also I knew that I'm straight and I felt like it could detonate the marriage to say, look, is this what's going on? And in the end, I think we managed to discuss it together and got there together. And it was it was completely devastating because... We both were really close, Mm -hmm. committed parents. We'd gone through so much together and neither of us wanted to be separated. But also, I couldn't ask her to not be trans any more than she could ask me to not be straight. So we were at the end of the road that a marriage could go along. And it was totally devastating. But ultimately now it's really positive because all that stuff we were talking about at the beginning about the IVF and all those moments where I was on the the other side of the natural way to do things really informed how I think about the trans experience now and like IVF 40 years ago there were people protesting there were arguments in parliament there were people saying that IVF was disgusting and against the natural way of things and meddling with nature and perverting the course of what should be and the when you look at the conversation that was happening then the parallels are absolutely incredible and so I felt like I mean I'd taken some of the actual same drugs that trans women take now yeah to live what I perceive to be my best self and to be the me where I would be my, you know, and it's it's not the same wanting to be a mother to being trans, but there are undeniable and really powerful parallels, which really informed how I responded to it. I mean, there was anger and there was frustration and there was a lot well, of pain. And, like... and there
0: would, you know, with any, with any divorce of, or breakup of any kind, there's a huge shift and there's got to be a time of adaptation yeah. and... You know, where do you put all of that, all of those feelings within you? Yeah,
2: it was really
0: difficult
2: to work out where to put the pain and the rage and the confusion and the hormones because of all those things that had happened in such a small amount of time that I didn't want to be blaming things to do with an assault on... Who was then my spouse, yeah. or vice versa? Yeah. And I didn't want to be saying that feelings I would have were having should be dismissed because of hormones. But also, I knew that I'd read all my baby books and all the blogs and the Instagrams and all, and I knew hormones were also happening. And so, it took a really long time to sort of unravel everything. But we did it we're an amazing family now and our way of parenting is in lots of ways easier Mm -hmm. than some people who are still trying to maintain a totally hot functioning (laughs) (laughs) marital relationship as well because we've got all the stuff that is you know sometimes so challenging of like agreeing on parenting stuff and really deeply caring for each other but there's like this sort of amazing untethering from ego where it's like no one could really be to blame for this absolute quagmire that we ended up in. There could be responsibility and, you know, I could have done with some more information a bit sooner, admittedly. And at the time, you know, there were definitely dark, dark days where I felt like, oh, how convenient for you that I went through all this and the minute you got your baby. And I definitely did think those things in flashing, fleeting moments. But I definitely don't believe that truly was any kind of master plan.
0: But there's got to be so many conflicted feelings because, uh, on the other hand, this is someone that you love and you want them to be themselves and and there must almost be, as well as everything else, a pride in them allowing themselves the freedom to kind of express who they are. Ultimately, where I landed, and I think...
2: My mum took some convincing that this was where I'd landed. And I think she kept thinking she was really braced for a really long time that the real rage was yet to come. But I think she believes me now. Where I landed was that I'm really proud that in that context, we had a strong enough marriage and relationship, just as two human beings, that she was able to come out. Mm -hmm. Like, the thing that broke us as a husband and wife was the thing that made us as parents and humans. Because the freedom that you feel when you let go of trying to be a thing that you can't possibly be, is so enormous that it's it's kind of dizzying. And the certain knowledge that I know nothing and that life can completely steamroll you when you least expect it, has freed me up for the second half of my life to see things in a totally different way. Like I mean I'm not, you know, I still when it's like, ooh, it's May, it's five ten AM. Let's get mummy. <laughs> I'm not saying I spring out of bed going, another glorious day on earth <laughs> Oh no, I can see that happening. I can see it. <laughs> but I do find when things are difficult, like Well, life is difficult. I think was that Joe Biden thing when he was asked about everything that he went through with his first wife's accident and people say, do you never think, why me? And he said, why not me? And once you can think, well, why not me? It had to happen to someone. And I had a good network and good coping mechanisms and stuff. And I survived. So so it's kind of on me to make the most of it now. Mm. Like it, it turned out okay. And that's... It's really made me feel strangely a lot more powerful yeah. in how I parent and stuff, because there's so much fear of the unknown ab- around parenting. And I can remember being in a playground a couple of years ago with a friend, and she was like, "Oh, I don't, I don't like my daughter going on that one. Like, so and so's daughter fell off and and she bro- and she broke her arm. And I kind of and I and at the time, I think she thought I was a monster. I just sort of shrugged and went, "Yeah," and she went. How can you let your son still? when She was using his name. She's like, "How can you let him still go on it?" And I was like, "He might break his arm <laughs> one day. He might break his arm. Like, but also he might play on loads and loads of playgrounds first. And it's not. And and it took. It did take a couple more quite intense play days <laughs> before she thought I kind of wanted my son to break his arm. I think. But but it's that feeling of like, I can't live worrying that this thing would happen. It's a playground. It's it's not like I'm letting him climb on broken glass or whatever. I mean, I just feel like my son would be better off playing on a playground than with me standing one foot away going, be careful, be well, careful, Well, it's the be bubble careful. wrap effect,
0: isn't it? Like we, Actually, no yeah. one wins in that situation at all. And if, I mean, it's almost turning into an analogy, but if if children can learn to navigate their way through these trickier parts of a playground then you know yeah. they'll do so in a in a more informed way than if they were constantly yeah. just told no
2: yeah and I kind of don't I obviously I don't want my son to break my arm break his arm that would be horrible but it happens to loads of children and what they probably learn from it is that their arm gets better yeah and they are more careful about other things in future and what I learnt from really awful things that happened to me was that time passes and things heal, and and they those experiences I've been through have enriched how I see things. <laughs> Not enriched to the point where I'm like flinging him around playgrounds, but that I want him to have a share of that too. And also, I do I do speak up more now about diversity. a you way, know, you know, I'm straight, white, cis, able-bodied, and I think. Until a couple of years ago, I would have just been, like, clicking like on things and hoping that was enough because I would have been scared to say the wrong thing, to make it worse, to make it awkward. Whereas now, I'm like... You can tell when someone's made a mistake with pronouns or said, Daddy is a slip of the tongue to my son instead of other mummy or whatever, and it's a genuine mistake because we are all so used to all of these terms... And when it's, like, a bit of a dig. Right. You can tell, and I've got quite a good radar for sort of speaking up and checking and all that kind of thing. And I'm really proud that, that we're kind of getting there as a family now. It's been interesting watching my son develop language around that. Yeah. Because children aren't born with those pronouns and prejudices and stuff I mean there's that crazy period where they're gendering everything and they're misgendering everything it's like a banana (laughs) it's a plant (laughs) and you sort of watch them learn it from society and it's been really interesting seeing it happen in an organic way And my son's nursery has been really collaborative with us about that as well. And hopefully school will be too. It's it's scary because he's going to school in September. And I suppose his friends have now got enough language that they can ask what his setup is. And so it's getting him to a point where he's happy to do his own explaining. Yeah. Which is a bit complicated, but also good because then there'll be 30 other children that will know it's no big deal and stuff.
0: It is the more those conversations happen, the easier they are. I I guess the first time anyone has that conversation, it's going to be alien. People are going to be yeah. worried about saying the wrong thing. And it's like you say, people don't necessarily mean to say the wrong thing. And no, they're desperately exactly. trying to to say the right thing or put things in the right way that it's not going to offend.
2: And And people are different as well. Like some people really, really care about some words. Like I felt really possessive over being called Mummy for a really long time. But Mummy is a job title as well as a name, yeah. if you so see I mean. Yeah. And it, it became... I I could see it was causing my son confusion, like, what is... Because he's got a nickname for my ex. Yeah. And so he doesn't call her Mummy day-to-day, like, her name, but he knows that he's in a two-mummy family yeah. and things like that. And, um... And that sort of possessiveness that I used to feel over it has massively lessened by seeing how he needed to just know that the status, what the status was, who his parents were and stuff. And so things that you think you're really going to care about and dig your heels in about for 15 years just melt away. I mean, yeah, you could say that also about like, making handmade baby food and (laughs) (laughs) never letting them go in your bed. And, you know, it kind of goes in the giant pot with all of those things that you learn about parent, like things I thought I would dig my heels in about forever that just turn out not to matter.
0: I mean, and it's pretty amazing as well that you're bringing up a son in a time where... Literature is helping. You know, children's books. There are yeah. children's books now that Making such are a, a lot more diverse, a lot more inclusive. Mm. You know, he can see his family set up in books. Yeah.
2: That's made such a difference. There's a new one that just came out called The Pirate Mums, and that's one of the best ones for two mum families that I've come across because it's totally incidental to the plot, right. as it were. I think some of the ones which are just a bit, everybody's different and all families come in shapes and sizes and, you know, they slightly tend to kind of go,
0: yep, yep, got it, yeah. Yeah." yeah.
2: Mm -hmm. And whereas if it's like, so-and-so lives in a magical cave with two (laughs) mums, then they're like, "Oh, the magical cave. Like, the first time we did Pirate Mums, he wanted the T-shirt that Billy, the little boy in the book has. And it's, like, simultaneously really thrilling to see him just absorb that as a fact of life that this guy has two mums and for it to be completely ignored by him and for him to kind of care more like as a writer it's like well done you care about the ones with the good plot (laughs) (laughs) I
0: like that but it really
2: it really helps and it and it really helps that nursery has been collaborative and sort of, like, I've always been quite on it with them to make sure that when they, like, when it's been Families Week and stuff, they've done doing all the different kinds of families with all the children. There was one day ago, a couple of weeks ago, I shouldn't say their names, but we were, we were leaving nursery and my son was going, that's so-and-so and so-and-so. And they were twins, I could see that they were twins. And that's them and he was tugging tugging away at my sleeve and pointing at them and I was going yes yes very, very, they look lovely and he went they've got two houses too they've got two houses and I was thinking "Mm, great for them like when did you become like a four year old property guy (laughs) and I didn't understand what he was telling me at all and I rang the nursery the next day and said can you tell me about these two kids like Is everything, like, what's the deal? And the nursery manager, she was like, they've got two dads. (laughs) I was just really excited that there were two dad families as well as two mum families. And it was so sweet. It was like the first time that he had been articulating it back to me. That he he found another family that was different in a way that his was, and also that excitement, just...
0: that excitement of 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 yeah. of the connection, you know.
2: Yeah, you know. he was buzzing, yeah. and he just got like dad and house muddled up, and I was sort of <laughs> rolling my eyes, thinking
0: like, "Well done, second home, guys." <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope nursery after you know once once your son leaves and once those twins leave, I hope they continue to have. Well, it's in Brighton.
2: I think, yeah, there's definitely other families, but there's a sense of community with that stuff that that I never imagined I'd have in my life. Because it's a curious position to be in, to be like a lifetime member of an LGBT plus family while being totally straight and cis. yeah. I don't think that poor flag can take any more stripes on it, but I just feel like <laughs> add a little feather in the corner for allies or something.
0: <laughs> Alex, if you could write a letter on, on motherhood, who would it be to and what would you say? Um, or parenthood? I think it
2: would be just to all other parents in non-traditionally gendered family setups to just say that they're valid and that they there are a million ways to love children and that they're all equal and good enough and that the language is going to catch us up soon (laughs) and we were all working on it together I just I think there were moments when I felt so lonely about my kind of curious half position of being in and out of the LGBT plus community and Yeah, it would be to say that it's, it's totally valid. And, and I'm learning that more and more all the time, more making more connections and that because there's no shortage of information about all sorts of other areas of just, I say regular, because I don't want to say that other families aren't regular, but you know what I mean, traditional motherhood. So, yeah, that, that, I think that's who I'd write to, to say, like, we're doing our best back here. <laughs> we're a
0: couple of years ahead of you. We're, we're neatening the path as we go. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, because I know you've got to go-do pick-up, could you finish these three sentences? Uh, being a mum means...
2: It means what your child perceives it to mean. A child will find its mum if it is given the opportunity to. I spun too far away from traditional biology to feel truly adhered only to the biological aspect of it.
0: Yeah. And since having children, I?
2: Since having children, I have had a lot less sleep, but I think everybody <laughs> says that, I'm sure. Um, I've embraced the unexpected. I've realised that, that that is life. And I'm happy When? I think I'm happy when we're together as a family because I'm reminded that it's possible for all different shapes and sizes of families. That's lovely.
0: Thank you so much for (laughs) for coming and having a chat. I feel like we could have spoken for hours and hours and hours more, but I am aware that your son is is in nursery waiting for you. Um, Oh, no, it's okay. He's only across the road. Oh, that's good.
2: It's not like I have to get in a car.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Not at all.
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods,